We've been on an amazing journey through the first 20 chapters of Matthew. As we've been studying the life and ministry of Jesus through Matthew's eyes and obviously the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as he wrote, but we've now come to the final week of Jesus' life on earth, and there's so much that takes place in that last week. It's, it's amazing. On Friday of that week, he's going to die. Now, last week, we looked at what happened the Monday of that week as the crowds ushered him into Jerusalem from Bethphage uh, to the cries of, Yasaana, Hosanna, uh, save us, uh, uh, save us, son of David, hailing him as king and, and uh, Messiah, the deliverer, the savior. It was a wonderful day in one sense uh, because he was receiving the praise that is actually due him. Now, Bethphage was about a mile east of Jerusalem, so for however long it takes for a donkey to walk from Bethphage to Jerusalem, that's how long that procession of praise with the palm branches and the coats on the road uh, was taking. And as they got to Jerusalem, Mark tells us that that procession ended at the temple. He says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So the procession ended there at the gateway to the temple, and then he returned to Bethany uh, to spend the night with Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and the twelve disciples. Uh, I would assume it's probably fairly crowded, uh, disciples all around on the floor somewhere more than likely in a little house. Um, but it's now Tuesday morning, one day closer to Calvary. And on Tuesday, he goes back to the same place he had left Monday evening, back to the temple. And in verses 12 to 17 of Matthew 21, we find out what happened when he arrived there. Now, before we actually look at the text this morning, let me give you just a little bit of the setting that Jesus was aware of. At this particular time of Passover, and we've mentioned this before, Jerusalem was packed with people. The population had probably grown by three, four, perhaps even five times the normal population of Jerusalem as people from all over that part of the world flocked to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And the Passover tradition said that in order to celebrate the Passover, you had to be inside the city of Jerusalem. Well, with all these people, five, four, five times as many, that was virtually impossible. So it, it, um, it became a tradition at the Passover time that an edict was given that the boundaries of Jerusalem would be kind of pushed out a little bit, and they would encompass some of the smaller villages, including uh, Bethany and Bethphage, for all the people to be a part and uh, to stay somewhere to enjoy uh, the Passover and celebrate. And so Jesus, too, along with his 12 disciples, were out staying in Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, one of the places of the city that was most crowded with the pilgrims that came was the temple area. I mean, everything centered around the temple. 
Now, the Jewish law forbade that anyone should sleep in the temple, as far as any of the courts in the temple. And so they camped kind of as close, the first come, first serve, kind of around, around the temple, around the outside of the walls. Uh, they had to pitch their little tents or their um, blankets and things of that sort, uh, all trying to find a place. So the city was literally exploding with people, and the temple was a focal point of everything. As people came to celebrate, pray at the temple, they came in, uh, into the outer court of women to put their offerings in the little, we, we talked about this quite a while back, little trumpet-shaped receptacles. They could put their coins uh, in there. They came to offer their sacrifices and offerings for all kinds of things, um, giving it to God to seek cleansing for their sins, to seek ceremonial cleansings for, for purification rites. All this was being t- uh, take, taking place there at, during the Passover time. And so into this frenzy of activity at the temple, Jesus comes. And he makes a statement here that could never be misunderstood, and that is who he is, and he reveals once again his holiness and his authority. So let's take a look at Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17. Jesus entered the temple of God. And drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? (laughs) Yes, replied Jesus. Haven't you, have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. The very first phrase in verse 12 is huge, and it kind of lays the groundwork for the rest of the passage. Jesus entered the temple of God. He went to his father's house. This was his place. This was a place where people were supposed to make their lives right with God. This was a place where people were supposed to come and worship God. And it's interesting that he started and ended his ministry at the temple in the same way. Right after Jesus did his very first miracle of turning water into, into wine, he celebrated his first Passover, which is recorded in John chapter 2. And this was three years before. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove out all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. It's happened twice. So when he started his ministry, he started at the temple, cleansing it. And when he finished his ministry, he went back to the temple, cleansing it. Jesus, from the start to finish, was concerned about how people worshipped. He was concerned with their relationship to God. That was his mission. That's why he came, to reconcile people to God. 
three years had not changed his purpose. And he goes right back to the temple. You see, to effect true change, it does not start with government. It does not start with society. It starts with God. People needed God, and they needed true worship. They needed to know God's standard. They needed to know God's will and God's purpose for their relationship with Him. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, we read, For it is time for judgment to begin where? With God's household. Cleansing, purification, judgment begins at the house of God. As long as things were wrong in the house of God, they would be wrong in the nation. One author wrote, The measure of any society is a relationship it has to God. The relation, uh, excuse me, the measure of any society is a relationship it has to God. Well, you go back to reread Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18 to the end of the chapter. It described their society. It describes our society today to a T. Listen, just a couple verses. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about, is, uh, about God is plain to them. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Folks, the problem with society is not that it has bad laws. The problem with society is not that it has human and and race inequities. The problem with society is that it has abandoned God. And until there's a cleansing that takes place in our nation, the people and the people turn back to God, excuse me, all the stuff that we see blasted over our television says 24-7 is not going to change. But before that can take place, a cleansing of the nation, there needs to be a cleansing in the temple. There needs to be a cleansing in God's house. There needs to be a cleansing in the lives and individuals who worship in God's house. As Peter said, for it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. Christ came to cleanse the temple. And I feel that believers across this nation need to be praying, Jesus, cleanse the church in this nation. Jesus, cleanse your church. Because that and that alone is the only hope of the country, the hope of the nation, the hope of the world. So what did Jesus find when he came to the temple? Well, he found the same thing he found three years before. He had chased out the money changers the sellers of livestock, the sheep that were there, and the, the uh, doves and the pigeons. And now three years later, they're right back doing the same thing again. So he came back to cleanse it again, to reveal God's holiness and the falseness of the so-called Jewish religion of the time. He made a bold statement at the beginning of his ministry, and he's going out with a bold statement here as well. It's a statement proclaiming how God feels about false religion, how he feels about blasphemy, how he feels about those who treat him in an unholy manner. Now, try to imagine yourself standing with Jesus 
at that scene. As he comes back to the temple that morning, imagine the city of Jerusalem packed with people, crowds and crowds of people milling everywhere, and the temple is a focal point of all, all the activity, masses of people there. And as Jesus comes to that place, this is what he faces. A great outer wall of colonnades and columns surround the whole temple area, and through the main gate he enters into the court of Gentiles. It was called the court of Gentiles because anybody could go in there, even the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And once into the court of Gentiles, you would notice a gate, and that gate was called the Gate Beautiful. And inside that gate was the court of women. And that was a place where Jewish women, not Gentiles, Jewish women, and Jewish men could go in there as well, but that was where the Jewish women could go to, to worship. In fact, that was, there was a uh, sort of a, a wall all the way around the perimeter of the actual temple with warning signs that if the Gentiles went in there, they'd lose their life. Now, in a different diagram here, you'll see that as you go through the gate beautiful, you'd come into the court of women. Uh, there was then a gate in the court of women called the Nicanor Gate, or the Great Gate, which gave entrance into what was known as the court of the Israelites. And this is where the Jewish men could then uh, enter, and they would take their sheep or the turtle dove or, or their grain offering, and they would get it all prepared um, in the court of the Israelites, after which they'd take, take that to another gate, which entered into the court of priests. And there they would hand their, their, uh, their offering to the priests, and in the court of priests, the altar of burnt offering sat. And that's where the men then at that gateway could watch as the priests sacrificed uh, their, their offering that they brought. Now, from the court of priests, there was a set of steps which entered into a 600-foot uh, courtyard, at the back of which was the holy place. It was a small building which included the holy place and the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was separated, as you know, by the big curtain, uh, and no one could go in there except the high priest, and that was only once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, Jesus walks in the outer wall and stands in the court of the Gentiles. And since this was the court of Gentiles, this is where the Jews had filled it with just about everything. And it was known in those days as the Bazaar of Annas, Annas being the high priest, a, a corrupt and evil, horrible man who saw the temple as a way to get power and wealth. And he had this great idea. He had his priests sell concession stands. And you would buy or rent a space in the court of Gentiles, and then you, you could come in and sell sheep and lambs or doves or pigeons. You could exchange money, sell oil, wine, salt, anything that had to do with the sacrificial system. And you paid a heavy price for that concession stand because you could make a bundle there. And the priest would only allow people to offer sacrifices that were approved. And guess what? The only ones that were approved were the ones that were sold within the temple walls. Isn't that convenient? And according to the Jewish historian, a man by the name of Edersheim, these uh, lambs would be sold for ten times their value. So this whole thing was a, a, a time of extortion and a, a scam on these poor people coming, trying to make a sacrifice, trying to worship God, and the people could do nothing about it. 
And if you wanted to exchange your money because you'd have to have exactly half a shekel, if you came from a foreign country with foreign currency, well, that too had to be changed into the half shekel, and you'd pay at least a 25% a fee to have your money changed. And this, is, this was all done in the name of religion. And they were everywhere. So Jesus walks into his father's house. And his eyes and ears and nostrils are filled with the sights and sounds and smells, the stench of an animal yard, the, the wrangling and haggling of people bargaining over the price of these animals, the bleeding of sheep, the crying of the animals being slaughtered, an unbelievable scene as he walks in. And he sees this happening knowing these poor people were being extorted. So how could they worship his father. So you can imagine that scene. Now remember, Annas the high priest was a powerful and rich man, and the other priests were under him were equally as powerful. Everybody did what they said. They had no choice. But they were about to meet somebody over whom they had absolutely no power. It says in verse 12, Jesus entered that temple of God and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Talk about shock and awe. Can you imagine? They had to have been in in shock. It had to be everyone experiencing that. You just didn't mess with stuff in the temple. That was never done. Now, if you always thought that Jesus was always this uh, meek, mild, gentle, humble, gracious person, you really need to understand what's taking place here in the temple. Jesus drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the temples and money changers and, and the benches and those selling doves. There's nothing that incenses God more than those who hinder people from worshiping him. Remember when Jesus uh, said in Luke 17, 2, it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. God sent his one and only son to reconcile people to God. God sent his one and only son to break the barrier of sin that had been erected between man and God. Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood. He paid the price to redeem us from sin and death. The curtain blocking the entrance of the Holy Holies was violently torn apart when Jesus died on the cross for you and for me so we could come into the very presence of God and worship him. That's the way it's supposed to be. Jesus died because God so loved the world, Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. If you take a look at a diagram of the temple again, the Gentiles were five barriers away from God's presence. Five barriers And then even when they were in the prescribed court way on the outside, there was this massive marketplace taking place with the sheep and pigeons and money changers with all the bedlam that was going on. Imagine yourself trying to worship God in the midst of all that. Jesus stepped into the court of Gentiles and he was incensed. He was angry. He... Drove out. The Greek word is ekbalo, 
to cast out, to drive out, to send out with the idea of violence. That's what that word is saying here. He drove out, ekbalo, all who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the benches of those selling doves. The first time he did this was in John 2. We, we talked about that right after he did his first miracle. And it says he, he made a whip out of cords. And he went around with his whip, chasing everybody out and overturning everything. He drove out all. He drove everybody out, both the sellers and the buyers. They were all making a mess here. He drove them all out. He herded them all out of the temple grounds. Why? Because worship can't be done in the midst of Bedlam. Psalm 46.10, God says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Sometimes there's so much bedlam in our own lives. Have you experienced that? We get so busy with doing. We keep our minds occupied with everything that's going on around us that we don't take time to be still and know that He is God and to worship Him. Jesus tore that curtain of the holy holies in two so that we can enter into his presence. Do we take time to be still, to be quiet, and spend time and worship God? I came across this poem entitled, No Time to Pray. And it goes like this. I got up early one morning and rushed right into the day. I had so much to accomplish that I didn't take time to pray. Problems just tumbled about me, and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. He answered, you didn't ask. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me. He said, but you didn't seek. I tried to come into God's presence. I, I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided, my child, you didn't knock. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. Wouldn't it be amazing if we tithed a portion of our waking hours to spend time with God? Even, on, even an hour, to spend time with God, to pray, to study, to be still, and know that he is God. So Jesus drove out all who were buying and selling, overturning the tables. He just went, sorry, kicking over the crates and knocking over the stools. Wouldn't it be great to stand on the side and watch all that happen? He flipped the tables, throwing the people out of there. He cleared the place. He herded the sheep out. And the Gospel of Mark adds, he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. What's he saying? What does that mean? Well, what, what apparently happened over time was that it became easier for people to take a shortcut through the court of Gentiles to get from point A to point B and vice versa. Instead of walking all the way around the temple walls, so much easier to take a direct path. After all, it was just the court of Gentiles who really cared. 
So they were apparently using the temple area just like a thoroughfare or a, or a street like any other public street, carrying all their wares, their baggage through the temple with no concern about, about the place that was supposed to be dedicated for, to the Gentiles in order for them to worship. And Jesus just stopped all that immediately. He would not allow any more passage of all this stuff going through. Now this is the same Jesus that we saw a week ago riding a colt the foal of a donkey, meek and lowly and humble, coming in peace. What's the difference? Well, he did come meek and lowly. He came as one who was to die in humility. But at the same time, he also just gave an amazing demonstration of the reason for which he came. And that is to change people from false worshipers to true worshipers. And you know, as I was thinking about the marketplace of the, the courtyard there, and the thoroughfare being used as a shortcut, allowing all kinds of junk to be uh, taken through that temple area, I got to thinking about our own personal lives. What kind of junk, what kind of baggage, what kind of worldly stuff do we allow to go through the temple of the Holy Spirit? What do we watch What do we read? What kind of thoughts do we allow to sit and fester in our minds? When we allow sin to come into our minds and hearts and don't deal with it quickly, it's like the people traipsing through those temple grounds with all that baggage and all their wares. It's like allowing ungodly vendors to set up sheep pens and pigeon cages in our minds and in our hearts. The psalmist said in Psalm 5, 4, For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. Sin should not be welcome in the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why Scripture tells us above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. It also says take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. By allowing sin to come into our lives, we hinder our relationship with God. We hinder the Holy Spirit from working in our lives. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, we read this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. No, it's not at all. But, he says, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. The blame is not on God. It's what we allow. Are we feeling distant from God? Are we feeling like He's far away? Are we feeling like we're not hearing from Him? God, where are you? Maybe we need to ask ourselves, what have I allowed to traipse through my life? What have I allowed to set up business in my life that is not pleasing to God? We need to let Jesus do some temple cleansing in our own life. Psalm 139, verse 23 says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. 
Back in Matthew 21, verse 13, Jesus told those who were in the temple as he was throwing the sin out, my house will be called a house of prayer. It can't be a house of prayer, a house of worship, when, we're, uh, when we've got all kinds of other stuff going on. We've got, got all kinds of other garbage in it. But when we confess our sins, he purifies us from all unrighteousness. Then do you know what happens? When that takes place, God begins to work. Do you know what happened at the temple after Jesus drove out all who were buying and selling? Next verse, verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. God began to work. Do you think the Pharisees and Sadducees really cared about the poor? Those who were not part of their elite society? They gave lip service to helping them. They were useful to them because they could give their alms. That's what the law required. And so the poor were, were, uh, were handy for them. They could give their alms, and, and uh, that, that showed that they were, they were uh, concerned. But all they really cared about was power and money and control. That's why they hated Jesus, because he stood up to them with, all, with an authority they had never seen before. But in order to work and minister to people in that temple, he first had to clean it out. He first had to purify it. And he's standing there in the midst of the debris, and though it's, the debris is all over, the temple is actually cleansed because all the stuff has been chased out. And here come the blind, and here come the lame, who always hung around the temple anyway because that, that's where God was supposed to be. God was the one that was supposed to be helping them. And he came, uh, they, they came and they were truly seeking a touch from God. Now you'd have thought that they might have been terrified when, when they, they saw, saw the rage of Jesus as he chased out all these people. But you know what? They knew it wasn't aimed at them. They saw Jesus' heart and his compassion. Folks, Jesus hates sin, but his compassion overflows for those who come and seek him. Earlier I said that I feel that that believers across this nation need to be praying, Jesus, cleanse the church of this nation. Jesus, cleanse your church. There has been so much sin that has infiltrated into the church as a whole, and, 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 and we, we do need to pray that God does his cleansing work all the way across the, the country. But within that church, in the largest sense of, of the word, is the local church. And the pastor and elders are praying for the cleansing of, of any sin that may be in the church um, as a whole, past or present, and asking God to purify. But within that local church... We have the individual temples of the Holy Spirit, and that's you and I. And that is our individual responsibility, to ask Jesus to do the temple cleansing he may need to do in our lives. And as long as we have those sinful thoughts, perhaps those sinful, unconfessed deeds in our lives, we cannot please God. Scripture tells us that. And, we, and he cannot work in the way he wants to because we are hindering him. Jesus wants so desperately to come in with his cleansing solution. You know what that is. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. And he wants to do the scrubbing that needs to be done to purify us from all unrighteousness. 
Now Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life? Folks, we can reign in life. We can have victory in life through the blood of Christ, the purity that comes with Christ. How much more can we reign in life through the, the, the one man, Jesus Christ? He's the one that can give it to us. Now, no matter what sin we have lurking in the dark corners of our heart, and only you and the Lord knows that, God's grace is so much bigger. God's grace is so much bigger. Paul goes on to say, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Folks, let's not allow sin to increase in our lives. And as we come to the communion table this morning, what a perfect time to ask for our personal temple cleansing. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and and lead us to the altar of communion this morning. Imagine yourself as a Gentile with five barriers between you and the presence of God. The song says, Take me past the outer courts, and through the holy place, past the brazen altar, Lord, I want to see your face. Pass me by the crowds of people, the priests who sing their praise. I hunger and thirst for your righteousness, but it's only found in one place. So take me into the holy of holies. Take me in by the blood of the Lamb. So take me into the holy of holies. Take the coal. Cleanse my lips. Here I am. Let this be our prayer this morning as we come to the communion table.